Section 4 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine Parr, Chapter 2, Part 1. One great trial, we may add peril, of Catherine Parr's queenly life was the frequent presence of her former lover, Sir Thomas Seymour, who was one of the gentlemen of the king's privy chamber. The contrast between him and her royal lord must have been painfully apparent, at times, to Catherine. She was surrounded with invidious spies withal, who would have been only too happy to be able to report a word, a look, or even a sigh, to the king, as evidence of her preferment for the handsome Seymour. But the high principles and consummate prudence of the queen carried her triumphantly through an ordeal, which some princesses might not have passed without loss of life and fame. The conduct of Seymour was rash, inconsistent, and selfish. He was the most restless, and at the same time the most blundering, of intriguers. He had shared in the spoils of the sequestered abbeys, though in a lesser degree than his brother, the Earl of Hertford, and was one of those who would have tempted the king to appropriate the revenues of the bishops. It was, however, necessary to find some cause of complaint with that body, and according to Fox, he began at the fountainhead. Sir Thomas Seymour, says our author, who waited on the king, not much favoring Cranmer, accused him of wasting his revenues and retrenching all hospitality, in order to gather riches for his wife and children, and that such stipends would be no small profit to his majesty. About a fortnight afterwards, one day, the king having washed before going to dinner, and Sir Thomas Seymour holding the basin, he said to him, Go you out of hand to my lord of Canterbury, and bid him be with me at two o'clock, and fail not. When Seymour went to Lambeth, he found the great hall set out for dinner, and the usual hospitality going forward, and being invited by Cranmer to dine, at which meal all proceeded with the usual state of the former archbishops. Sir Thomas Seymour presently divined that he had been sent on purpose, and, after delivering his message, went back to the king in great haste. Ho! said Henry, when he saw him, dined you not with my lord of Canterbury? Sir Thomas Seymour spied a portentous cloud on the royal brow as he replied, That I did, your majesty, and he will be with your highness forthwith. Then, falling on his knees, he added, I beseech your majesty to pardon me, for I have of late told you an untruth concerning my lord of Canterbury's housekeeping, but I will never henceforth believe the knave, which did put that vain tale in my head, for never did I see in my life so honourable a hall set in the realm, except your majesty's, or so well furnished, according to each degree, and himself also most honourably served. Ah, sir, quoth the king, have you now spied the truth? But I perceive which way the wind bloweth. There are a sort of you, whom I have liberally given of suppressed abbeys, which, as you have lightly gotten, so you have unthriftily spent, some at dice, other some in gay apparel, and otherwise worse, I fear. And now all is gone. You would fain have me make another cherissance, or gratuity, of the bishop's lands, to satisfy your greedy appetites. Far different from this worldly, self-seeking spirit 
was the disinterested devotion of the queen to the cause of the reformation with nothing to gain and everything to lose by her religion she courageously maintained the opinions to which she had become a convert and in her zeal for the translation of the holy scriptures left no means untried for the accomplishment of that good work she appointed miles coverdale to the office of her almoner and rendered him every assistance in his labor of love even that determined pillar of the olden faith the princess mary her stepdaughter was won upon by catherine to cooperate partially in the undertaking as will be shown in the memoir of that queen a circumstance which proves how resistless in their gentleness must have been the manners of the royal matron whom the protestant church may well regard as its glory the learned nicholas udall master of eton school was employed by catherine parr to edit the translations of erasmus's paraphrases on the four gospels in the labor of which the princess mary was induced by her royal stepmother to take an active share the queen thus addresses the princess mary on the expediency of appending her name to her translation i beseech you to send me this beautiful and useful work when corrected by mallet or some other of your household and at the same time let me know whether it shall be published under your own name or anonymously in my own opinion you will not do justice to a work in which you have taken such infinite pains for the public and would have still continued to do so as is well known had your health permitted it if you refuse to let it descend to posterity under the sanction of your name for since everybody is aware what fatigue you have undergone in its accomplishment i do not see why you should refuse the praise that all will deservedly offer you in return the first edition of these paraphrases of which so important a use was afterwards made by cramner and somerset was published according to stripe in fifteen forty five at the sole expense of queen catherine parr in this dedication to his royal patroness udall remarks on the great number of noble women at that time in england given to the study of devout science and of strange tongues it was a common thing he quaintly adds to see young virgins so noozled and trained in the study of letters that they willingly set all other pastimes at naught for learning's sake it was now no news at all to see queens and ladies of most high estate and progeny instead of courtly dalliance to embrace virtuous exercises reading and writing and with most earnest study early and late to apply themselves to the acquiring of knowledge fortunately for catherine parr and those fair and gentle students who were encouraged by the example of that learned queen to seek the paths of knowledge they flourished in days when the acquirements of ladies were regarded as their glory not their reproach learning in women was then considered next unto holiness and the cultivation of the female mind was hailed by the wise the good the noble of england as a proof of the increasing refinement of the land in later centuries invidious ignorance has succeeded in flinging the brand of vulgar opprobrium on such women as sir thomas more erasmus udall and Ascombe all but deified margaret roper catherine parr and the divine lady jane grey would inevitably have been stigmatized as blue stockings if they had lived in the nineteenth instead of the sixteenth century when catherine parr was first called to the unenviable distinction of sharing the throne of henry the eighth 
the poverty of the crown precluded the king from indulging his love of pomp and pageantry in any of the public feats and rejoicings which had been so frequent in the first thirty years of his reign the expense of a coronation for the new queen was out of the question and though she was dowered in the same proportion as her predecessors had been it must have been a source of comfort to catherine that she enjoyed a fine income as the widow of lord burrow and lord latimer independently of her royal allowance as queen consort of england henry's pecuniary distresses had led him to the fallacious expedient of raising the nominal value of the currency of the realm and afterwards of issuing a fresh coinage in which the proportion of alloy exceeded that of the silver this purblind proceeding gave the death-blow to trade by ruining the national credit and involving himself his subjects and successors in tenfold difficulties in the autumn of fifteen forty five henry claimed the assistance of parliament but the subsidy granted not satisfying the rapacious and needy sovereign the revenues of all the hospitals and colleges in england were placed at his disposal by the time-serving and venial legislators of whom it was composed the university of cambridge dreading the spoliation with which it was threatened implored the protection of their learned queen catherine who was not forgetful of the affection and respect which had ever been manifested for her person and character by this erudite body exerted her utmost influence with her royal husband to avert the storm that impended over that ancient nursery of learning and piety the letter in which her majesty informs the members of the university of the success of her intercession with the king in their behalf is exceedingly curious and the advice she offers as to the nature of their studies is equally creditable to her head and heart letter from queen catherine parr to our right trusty dear and well-beloved chancellor and vice-chancellor of my lord the king's majesty's university of cambridge and to the whole said university there your letters i have received presented on all your behalfs by mr dr smythe your discreet and learned advocate and as they be latinly written which is signified unto me by those that be learned in the latin tongue so i know you could have uttered your desires and opinions familiarly in your vulgar tongue aptest for your intelligence albeit you seem to have conceived rather partially than truly a favorable estimation both of my going forward and dedication to learning which to advance or at least conserve your letters move me this passage must not be considered by the reader as any contradiction of her attainments as a latin scholar because notwithstanding her denial of learning the queen meant not to be taken at her word as ignorant of the language in which the university had addressed her for she uses in the course of the letter a very apt latin quotation you show me how agreeable it is to me being in this worldly estate not only for mine own part to be studious but also a maintainer and cherisher of the learned state bearing me in hand or insisting that i am endowed and perfected with those qualities which ought to be in a person of my station truly this your discreet and politic document i as thankfully accept as you desire that i should embrace it and forasmuch as i do here all kind of learning doth flourish among you in this age as it did amongst the greeks at athens long ago 
I desire you all not so to hunger, for the exquisite knowledge of profane learning, that it may be thought that the Greek university was but transposed, or now in England revived, forgetting our Christianity, since their excellency did not only attain to moral and natural things. But rather, I gently exhort you to study and apply those doctrines, as means and apt degrees, to the attaining and setting forth Christ's reverent and sacred doctrine, that it may be laid against you in evidence, at the tribunal of God, how you were ashamed of Christ's doctrine. For this Latin lesson, I am taught to say of St. Paul, Non me podet evangelii, to the sincere setting forth whereof, I trust, universally in all your vocations and ministries you will apply, and conform your sundry gifts, arts and studies, in such end and sort, that Cambridge may be accounted rather a university of divine philosophy than of natural and moral, as Athens was, upon the confidence of which your accomplishment of my expectation, zeal, and request, I, according to your desires, have attempted my lord the king for the establishment of your livelihood and possessions, in which, notwithstanding his majesty's property and interest, through the consent of the high court of parliament, his highness being such a patron to good learning, doth tender you so much, that he would rather advance learning, and erect new occasion thereof, then confound your ancient and godly institutions, so that such learning may hereafter ascribe her very original whole conversation to our sovereign lord the king, her only defense and worthy ornament, the prosperous estate and princely government, of whom long to preserve. I doubt not, but every one of you will in the daily invocation call upon him, who alone and only can dispose to every creature." scribbled by the rude hand of her that prayeth to the lord and immortal god to send you all prosperous success in godly learning and knowledge from my lord the king's majesty's manor of greenwich the twenty sixth of february catherine the queen k p the triumph which catherine parr's virtuous influence obtained in this instance over the sordid passions of henry and his greedy ministers ought to endear the name of the royal patroness of learning to every mind capable of appreciating her magnanimity and moral courage the beauty the talents and rare acquirements of catherine parr together with the delicate tact which taught her how to make the most of these advantages enabled her to retain her empire over the fickle heart of henry for a longer period than the fairest and most brilliant of her predecessors but these charms were not the most powerful talisman with which the queen won her influence. It was her domestic virtues, her patience, her endearing manners, that rendered her indispensable to the irritable and diseased voluptuary, who was now paying the severe penalty of bodily tortures and mental disquiet for the excesses of his former life. Henry had grown so corpulent and unwieldy in person that he was incapable of taking the slightest exercise, much less of recreating himself with the invigorating field sports and boisterous pastimes in which he had formerly delighted. The days had come unexpectedly upon him, in which he had no pleasure. His body was so swollen and enfeebled by dropsy that he could not be moved to an upper chamber without the aid of machinery. Hitherto the excitement of playing the leading part in the public drama of royal pomp and pageantry had been, with sensual indulgences, the principal objects of his life. 
deprived of these and with the records of an evil conscience to dwell upon in the weary hours of pain his irascibility and impatience would have goaded him to frenzy but for the soothing gentleness and tender attentions of his amiable consort catherine was the most skilful and patient of nurses and shrunk not from any office however humble whereby she could afford mitigation to the sufferings of her royal husband it is recorded of her that she would remain four hours on her knees beside him applying fomentations and other palliatives to his ulcerated leg which he would not permit any one to dress but her she had already served an apprenticeship to the infirmities of sickness in her attendance on the deathbeds of her two previous husbands and had doubtless acquired the art of adapting herself to the humours of male invalids a royally born lady might have been of little comfort to henry in the days of his infirmity but catherine parr had been educated in the school of domestic life and was perfect in the practice of its virtues and its duties she sought to charm the ennui which oppressed the once magnificent and active sovereign in the unwelcome quiet of his sick chamber by inducing him to unite with her in directing the studies and watching the hopeful promise of his beloved heir prince edward the following letter addressed to catherine by her royal stepson bears witness to the maternal kindness of the queen and the affection of the precocious student prince edward to catherine parr most honourable and entirely beloved mother i have me most humbly recommended to your grace with like thanks both for that your grace did accept so gently my simple and rude letters and also that it pleased your grace so gently to vouchsafe to direct unto me your loving and tender letters which do give me much comfort and encouragement to go forward in such things wherein your grace beareth me on hand that i am already entered i pray god i may be able to satisfy the good expectation of the king's majesty my father and of your grace whom god have ever in his most blessed keeping your loving son e prince there is extant a latin and a french letter addressed to the queen in the same filial style the arrival of the plantipotenaries to negotiate a peace between england and france in the commencement of the year fifteen forty six caused the last gleam of royal festivity and splendor that was ever to enliven the once magnificent court of henry the eighth claude d'ambau the admiral who had a few months previously attempted a hostile descent on the isle of wight and attacked the english fleet was the ambassador extraordinary on this occasion he was received with great pomp at greenwich where he landed and on hounslow heath he was met by a numerous cavalcade of nobles knights and gentlemen in king henry's service headed by the young heir of england prince edward who though only in his ninth year was mounted on a charger and performed his part in the pageant by welcoming the admiral and his suite in the most gracious and engaging manner on bow embraced and kissed the princely boy and all the french nobles were loud in their commendations of the beauty and gallant bearing of this child of early promise prince edward then conducted the embassy to hampton court where for ten days they were feasted and entertained with great magnificence by the king and queen henry on this occasion presented catherine parr with many jewels of great value that she might appear with suitable eclat as his consort to the plantipotenaries of france 
he also provided new and costly hangings and furniture for her apartments as well as plate which she naturally regarded as her own property but a long and vexatious litigation took place with regard to these gifts after the death of the king as will be shown in its proper place the increasing influence of catherine with king henry and the ascendancy she was acquiring over the opening mind of the future sovereign was watched with jealous alarm by the party most inimical to the doctrines of the reformation Rodesley, the lord chancellor who had been the base suggester to henry the eighth of a breach of faith to anne of cleves and afterwards pursued the monarch's fifth unhappy queen with the zest of a bloodhound till her young head was laid upon the block waited but for a suitable opportunity for effecting the fall of catherine parr gardiner bishop of winchester was his confederate in this intention but so blameless was the conduct so irreproachable the manners of the queen that as in the case of daniel it was impossible for her deadliest foes to find an occasion against her except in the matter of her religious opinions in these she was opposed to henry's arbitrary notions who was endeavouring to erect the dogma of his own infallibility on the ruins of papacy every dissent from his decisions in points of faith had been visited with the most terrible penalties in his last speech to parliament he had bitterly complained of the divisions in religion which distracted his realm for which he partly blamed the priests some of whom he sarcastically observed were so stiff in their old mumsimus and others so busy with their sumsimus that instead of preaching the word of god they were employed in railing at each other and partly the fault of the laity whose delight it was to censor the proceedings of their bishops priests and preachers if you know continued the royal polemic that any preach perverse doctrine come and declare it to some of our council or to us to whom is committed by god authority to reform and order such cases and behaviors and be not judges yourselves of your own fantastic opinions and vain expositions and although you be permitted to read holy scriptures and to have the word of god in your mother tongue you must understand it is licensed you so to do only to inform your conscience your children and families and not to dispute and to make scripture a railing and taunting stock against priests and preachers i am very sorry to know and hear how irreverently the precious jewel the word of god is disputed rhymed sung and jangled in every alehouse and tavern contrary to the true meaning and doctrine of the same this speech was a prelude to the rigorous enforcement of the six articles the most interesting victim of the fiery persecution that ensued in the spring and summer of fifteen forty six was the young beautiful and learned anne askew she was a lady of honourable birth and ancient lineage and having become a convert to the new faith was for that cause violently driven from her house by her husband mr kime of lincolnshire she then resumed her maiden name and devoted herself to the promulgation of the religious opinions she had embraced it was soon known that the queen's sister lady herbert the duchess of suffolk and other great ladies of the court countenanced the fair gospeller nay more that the queen herself had received books from her in the presence of lady herbert lady tyrwhitt and the youthful lady jane grey which might bring her majesty under the penalty of the statute against reading heretical works 
the religious opinions of a young and beautiful woman might perhaps have been overlooked by men with whom religion was a matter of party not conscience but the supposed connection of anne askew with the queen caused her to be singled out for the purpose of terrifying or torturing her into confessions that might furnish a charge of heresy or treason against her royal mistress the unexpected firmness of the christian heroine baffled this design she endured the utmost afflictions of Rodesley's vindictive fury without permitting a syllable to pass her lips that might be rendered subservient to this purpose anne askew had been supported in prison by money which had been conveyed to her from time to time by persons supposed to be in the service of the ladies of the queen's bedchamber and the lord chancellor's inquisitorial cruelty was especially exercised in his attempts to exhort from the hapless recipient of this charity the names of her secret friends it is well known that when sir anthony nevitt the lieutenant of the tower endeavoured by his directions to the jailer to modify the ferocious and it seems illegal requisition of chancellor rodesley to inflict severer agonies on the tender but unshrinking victim his lordship threw off his gown and with the assistance of his pitiless accomplice rich worked the rack till to use anne's own words they well-nigh plucked her joints asunder when the lieutenant of the tower found his authority thus superseded he promptly took boat and proceeding to the king indignantly related to him the disgusting scene he had just witnessed henry affected to express great displeasure that a female should have been exposed to such barbarity but he neither punished the perpetrators of the outrage nor interposed his authority to preserve anne askew from a fiery death indeed if the contemporary author quoted by speed is to be credited henry had himself ordered anne askew to be stretched on the rack being exasperated against her for having brought prohibited books into his palace and imbued his queen and his nieces suffolk's daughters with her doctrine the terrible sentence which consigned the dislocated frame of the young and lovely anne askew a living prey to the flames shook not the lofty self-devotion of the victim several persons professing the reformed doctrine were condemned to die at the same time among whom were two gentlemen of the royal household william morris the king's gentleman usher and sir george bagg of the privy chamber the following touching particulars of their last meeting have been recorded by a survivor i being alive narrates john loud tutor to sir robert southwell and a gentleman of lincoln's inn must needs confess of her departed to the lord there was a sad party of victims and their undaunted friends gathered in the little parlour at newgate sir george bagg was with lassels a gentleman of a right worshipful house in nottinghamshire at gatford near worksop the day before his execution and that of anne askew who had says the narrator an angel's countenance and a smiling face lassels was in the little parlour by newgate he mounted up in the window-seat and sat there he was merry and cheerful in the lord and sir george bagg sat by his side one belenian a priest likewise burnt was there three of the throckmortons were present sir nicholas being one of them by the same token a person unknown to me said ye are all marked men that come to them take heed to your lives 
the throckmortons were to be remembered the near kinsmen of the queen and confidential members of her household they were her elevés and converts withal to the faith of which she was the nursing mother undismayed by the warning they had received when they came to comfort anne askew and her fellow captives in prison these heroic brethren ventured to approach her when she was borne to her funeral pyre in smithfield for the purpose of offering her sympathy and encouragement but they were again warned that they were marked men and compelled to withdraw in a far different spirit came Rodesley, russell and others of the ruthless clique to witness the last act of the tragedy and to tempt the weakness of woman's nature by offering her the king's pardon on condition of her recanting she treated the proposal with the scorn it merited and her fearless demeanor encouraged and strengthened the resolution of the three men who shared with her the crown of martyrdom the male victims were not subjected to torture they appear to have suffered on matters of faith unconnected with politics and askew may be regarded as a sacrifice to the malignity of the party who failed in making her an instrument in their machinations against the queen the terror and anguish which must have oppressed the heart of the queen at this dreadful period may be imagined not only was she unable to avert the fate of the generous anne askew and the other protestant martyrs but she was herself with some of her nearest and dearest connections on the verge of the like peril sir george bagg who was involved in the same condemnation with anne askew and those who suffered with her was a great favorite with the king who was wont to honor him in moments of familiarity with the endearing appellation of his pig henry does not appear to have been aware of bagg's arrest till informed of his condemnation he then sent for Rodesley and rated him for coming so near him even to his privy chamber and commanded him to draw out a pardon bagg on his release flew to thank his master who seeing him cried out ah my pig you are here safe again yes sire said he and if your majesty had not been better than your bishops your pig had been roasted ere this time notwithstanding this rebuff Rodesley and his coadjutors presumed to come somewhat nearer to the king than an attack on members of his household, for they struck at the wife of his bosom. It was shrewdly observed by a contemporary that Gardner had bent his bow to bring down some of the head deer. Victims of less distinguished note were destined to fall first, but it was plain to all that it was to compass the disgrace and death of the queen that the fires of persecution had been rekindled, Rodesley and Gardner having masked an iniquitous political intrigue under the name of religion. The queen's sister, Lady Herbert, had been secretly denounced to Henry, as an active instrument in controverting his edict touching heretical works. This was a subtle prelude for an attack upon the queen herself, for when Henry had reason to suppose she received and read books, forbidden by his royal statutes, he was prepared to take every difference in opinion expressed or insinuated by her in the light not only of heresy but treason henry's anger was always the most deadly and dangerous when he brooded over an offence in silence queen catherine had been accustomed in their hours of domestic privacy to converse with him on theological subjects in which he took great delight the points of difference in their opinions and the ready wit and eloquence with which the queen maintained her side of the question 
gave piquancy to these discussions henry was at first amused and interested but controversies between husband and wife are dangerous pastimes to the weaker vessel especially if she chanced to have the best of the argument on subjects of less importance to his eternal welfare catherine might possibly have enough tact to leave the victory to her lord but laboring as she saw him under a complication of incurable maladies and loaded with a yet more fearful weight of unrepented crimes she must have been anxious to awaken him to a sense of his accountability to that almighty judge at whose tribunal it was evident he must soon appear with the exception of his murdered tutor fisher henry's spiritual advisers whether catholics or reformers had all been false to their trust they had flattered his worst passions and lulled his guilty conscience by crying peace peace when there was no peace catherine parr was perhaps the only person for the last ten years who had the moral courage to speak even in a modified manner the language of truth in his presence henry who was neither catholic nor protestant had a sumsumus of his own which he wished to render the national rule of faith and was at last exceedingly displeased that his queen should presume to doubt the infallibility of his opinions one day she ventured in the presence of gardiner to remonstrate with him on the proclamation he had recently put forth forbidding the use of a translation of the scriptures which he had previously licensed this was at a time when his constitutional irascibility was aggravated by a painful inflammation of his ulcerated leg which confined him to his chamber perhaps catherine in her zeal for the diffusion of the truths of holy writ pressed the matter too closely for the king showed tokens of mislike and cut the matter short the queen made a few pleasant observations on other subjects and withdrew henry's suppressed choler broke out as soon as she had left the room a good hearing it is said he when women become such clerks and much to my comfort to come in mine old age to be taught by my wife gardiner who was present availed himself of the scornful sally to insinuate things against her majesty which a few days before he durst not for his life have breathed to the king for says a contemporary author never handmaid sought more to please her mistress than she to please his humour and she was of singular beauty favour and comely personage wherein the king was greatly delighted but gardiner bishop of winchester lord chancellor Rodesley, and others of the king's privy chamber practised her death that they might the better stop the passage of the gospel yet they durst not speak to the king touching her because they saw he loved her so well but now that an offence had been given to the king's egotistical self-idolatry he was ready to listen to anything that could be said in disparagement of his dutiful and conscientious wife her tender nursing her unremitting attentions to his comfort together with her amiable and affectionate conduct to his children were all forgotten gardiner flattered him to the top of his bent on his theological knowledge and judgment in which he declared that his majesty excelled the princes of that and every other age as well as all the professed doctors of divinity insomuch that it was unseemly for any of his subjects to argue with him so malapertly as the queen had just done that it was grievous for any of his counsellors to hear it done since those who were so bold in words would not scruple to proceed to acts of disobedience adding 
that he could make great discoveries if he were not deterred by the queen's powerful faction in short he crept so far into the king at that time says fox he and his fellows so filled henry's mistrustful mind with fears that he gave them warrant to consult together about drawing articles against the queen wherein her life might be touched then they thought it best to begin with such ladies as she most esteemed and were privy to all her doing as the lady herbert afterwards countess of pembroke her sister the lady jane who was her first cousin and the lady tyrwhitt all of her privy chamber and to accuse them of the six articles and to search their closets and coffers that they might find somewhat to charge the queen which being found the queen should be taken and carried by night in a barge to the tower of which advice the king was made privy by gardiner this purpose was so finely handled that it grew within few days of the time appointed and the poor queen suspected nothing but after her accustomed manner visited the king still to deal with him touching religion as before at this momentous crisis when the life of the queen might be said to hang on a balance so fearfully poised that the descent of a feather would have given it a fatal turn the bill of articles that had been framed against her together with the mandate for her arrest were dropped by Rodesley from his bosom in the gallery at whitehall after the royal signature of the king had been affixed fortunately it happened that it was picked up by one of the attendants of the queen and instantly conveyed to her majesty whose sweetness of temper and gracious demeanor had endeared her to all her household End of section four.